O God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by sharing a story from uh, Bishop Karen Oliveto's book, Together at the Table. Bishop Oliveto is the first openly LGBTQ bishop in the United Methodist Church. And she tells, yeah, we, <laughs> we should celebrate that. And she tells the story of a man named Jeff, who was a member of a congregation that she served at one point in her ministry. And she writes about how Jeff loved the United Methodist Church. When he came out as a gay man, he was blessed to find a church that was reconciling, um, like Chum, a church that has made a public commitment to be in ministry with and for all people, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. And Bishop Oliveto writes about how Jeff was a strong Christian and he was a strong leader. And so he held a lot of leadership roles in the United Methodist Church where he was a member. And Bishop Oliveto remembers how some of the Wesleyan teachings were some of Jeff's favorite ones. Our, our Wesleyan understanding of grace, of how we come to draw closer to God and to follow Jesus more faithfully, those were powerful teachings for him. And he grew in his faith and relationship with God because of the United Methodist Church. And at the same time, Jeff was painfully aware of the struggle within the denomination at large, and that as, as a denomination as a whole, that we are not there yet in our affirmation of LGBTQ persons. And this was especially uh, apparent for Jeff as he was following um, General Conference of 2012. Now, for those of you who are like, wait, what in the world is General Conference, right? Here's a little bit of United Methodist polity. That General Conference is the only entity that can officially speak on behalf of the United Methodist Church. It is comprised of clergy and laity from all around the world, from our global United Methodist connection, and it meets every four years. And so following that conference in 2012, when the church failed once again, to move forward in affirming LGBTQ persons. Jeff was so hurt that he called Bishop Oliveto, who was his pastor at the time, and he asked her how he could be unbaptized. The continued struggle in the denomination was too hurtful for him. And Bishop Oliveto writes in the book about how that broke and first, she, she says, we have to understand that in our church, baptism is a sacrament to show God's deep and abiding love for us. In the United Methodist Church, we baptize babies, we baptize children, we baptize adults, and we do this because we believe that it is a sacrament, that, that it is in that sacrament that God acts, that it's not something that we are doing, but it is God who claims us, who marks us as beloved children of God, and we believe that there is nothing that we can do to earn baptism or to lose baptism. We don't unbaptize because God never takes away her love for us, no matter what. And so I just want to read an excerpt uh, from her book to capture this experience. 
She says, when Jeff asked to be unbaptized, it broke my heart, and I felt an anger within me I had never felt before. The church failed him. It failed him because it negated the truth that he is deeply loved by God, who offers each of us the same affirmation that was offered to Jesus. We are loved, not because of what we do, but because of who we are. The church broke its promise to him, made at the time of his baptism to love him no matter what. At the time of our baptism, the community makes a promise to God and to us as well that it will commit to remind us what we might forget, that we are unconditionally loved and unconditionally accepted. It doesn't matter if you turn out gay or straight, an addict or an accountant or an addicted accountant. Our task, our task as brothers and sisters is to provide a reminder of this love whenever one of us forgets. And so my brothers and sisters at CHUM, it feels important to me to start out this sermon today by saying sorry. Sorry to you and sorry to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters around the world for the, church, for the harm that the church has contributed to and participated in over the years. And in the next two weeks, um, there will be a special session of our general conference, and I will talk more about that in a moment. But for now, I just want to say that there may be times again when you hear harmful rhetoric or hurtful words or hurtful headlines. And so I want us to begin by remembering who we are as a congregation and our own history and commitment to affirming LGBTQ persons. This has been part of who we are for years, to be an advocate for the affirmation and inclusion of LGBTQ people, not only here in our local congregation, but to also work for change in our denomination at large. In 1991, uh, we created entrances to the church for new people. This, these were bold moves in that day and time. We started a potluck dinner for LGBTQ persons. We supported women's choice in a public way. We hosted funerals for people who died of AIDS. We hosted PFLAG meetings here in our facility. And then in 1994, the Viceroy Sunday School class was formed under the leadership of our very own Reverend Chuck Chipman, and it became the first reconciling group in Kansas. My brothers and sisters, CHUM has led the way, not only uh, here in Kansas, but ripples throughout our entire denomination. And then, though the practice of welcome was already present in our church, in 2009, College Hill UMC officially became a reconciling congregation, committed to ministry with all people, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. And we have those, uh, 
certificates that proudly hang at our two entrances here at the back, that people might pass them each and every Sunday, whether it's the first time one enters or the hundredth time, to be reminded of who we are as a congregation and our commitment to love all people and to be in ministry with all people. And so over the years, we have been unwavering in this commitment to provide a place of welcome and love but also to advocate for change in our denomination. Members of our church have served with the Reconciling Ministries Network, an LGBTQ advocacy group for the United Methodist Church. Members of our church have been elected as delegates to General Conference and worked for change on a global scale. Members of our church have contributed financially, not only to the work of the Reconciling Ministries Network, but also more recently to the work of mainstream UMC and their efforts to advocate for the One Church Plan. And again, I'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. But for now, I just want to say again that if you hear hurtful headlines or hurtful quotes from the United Methodist Church about LGBTQ persons over the, the next few weeks, please remember that we here at CHUM, at College Hill UMC, believe your sexuality is a gift from God, that it is good. Whether you are gay or straight, cisgender or transgender, we love you and we are committed to be church with you. Sexuality is this holy and sacred gift and all too often in the broader church. We have failed, as Bishop Oliveto writes. We have failed in walking alongside people as they discover and accept their sexuality. We have failed by telling LGBTQ persons that there is something wrong with who they are. And we have failed in affirming and blessing partnerships and marriages between two loving people, no matter their gender. And so it is time for change, my friends. And in 2016, at the last regular session of our general conference, the Reverend Mark Holland, who came and spoke here last fall, and who is also a delegate to general conference from our annual conference, he made a motion on the floor to table all legislation related to human sexuality and he asked our bishops to lead us forward. The motion passed, and the bishops accepted the challenge by creating the Commission on the Way Forward, a group of 32 members made up of clergy and laity from a variety of theological perspectives and from a variety of regions around the world. And the vision for the Commission on the Way Forward is this, and I want to read it to you. Um, it'll be up on the screen as well. The Commission will design a way for being church that maximizes the presence of the United Methodist witness in as many places in the world as possible, that allows for as much contextual differentiation as possible, and that balances an approach to different theological understandings of human sexuality with a desire for as much unity as possible. This unity will, will not be grounded in our conceptions of human sexuality, but in our affirmation 
of the triune God, who calls us to be a grace-filled and holy people in the Wesleyan tradition. And so the agreement in 2016 was that the proposals that the commissions developed would be considered at a special session of General Conference in 2019. And that special session is now upon us. It will meet February 23rd through the 26th in St. Louis, Missouri. And so I want to go through uh, the plans that the Commission on the Way Forward developed uh, very briefly to give you a snapshot of each one and to also talk about some plans that have emerged from some other voices in our denomination. So the Commission on the Way Forward uh, first, uh, they came up with two plans, one of which is the One Church Plan. And the One Church Plan keeps one council of bishops and all of our general agencies intact. It allows, but it does not mandate, churches to host same-gender weddings and clergy to perform same-gender weddings. It also allows, but does not mandate, the ordination of LGBTQ persons. And so you can see in this plan the attempt of that commission to uh, live out the vision and the task that they were given to them, to allow for diversity within our congregation, and to preserve the unity of the church as much as possible. The other plan that the Commission on the Way Forward put forth was the Connectional Conference Plan. This plan also keeps one council of bishops and all of our general agencies intact. But it would create three branches of the United Methodist Church, a traditional branch, a contextual branch, and a progressive branch. And annual conferences would choose an affiliation, and then subsequently local churches and pastors would choose an affiliation. And that would mean that conferences would be set up theologically rather than geographically as they are now. To be honest, this plan requires so many constitutional amendments in order for it to pass, it's probably dead before it gets started, unfortunately. The Council of Bishops, when they received these two plans, they endorsed the One Church Plan by nearly a two-thirds majority. And the Council of Bishops is made up of bishops from all over our, our United Methodist Connection all around the world. Subsequently, there were a few bishops and other leaders who drafted the traditional plan. This plan also keeps one council of bishops and our general agencies. It also keeps all of the restrictions that are currently in place in our Book of Discipline um, against L the inclusion of LGBTQ persons, and it increases accountability to those restrictions. So it would increase church trials um, there is also a modified traditional plan that includes what they're calling a gracious exit strategy um, to allow uh, churches who disagree to leave uh, with property intact. Later on, the United Methodist uh, Queer Clergy Caucus developed what they call the Simple Church Plan. Again, this plan keeps one council of bishops and all of our general agencies intact, and it removes restrictive language in the Book of Discipline related to LGBTQ persons, period. That's it. 
So with these plans before us and some other petitions uh, that I'm not going to go into, they're not plans, but they're other petitions, the special session for General Conference is scheduled, as I said, uh, for February 23rd through the 26th. And at this session, delegates will vote and a decision will be made. And I've already told you that it's pretty unlikely that the Connectional Conference plan will pass. It is also unlikely that the Simple Church plan will pass, though I will admit that that is certainly the plan that, that goes all the way to justice. There are probably three possible outcomes of this special session. It's possible that the One Church plan will pass. It's possible that the traditional plan will pass or the modified traditional. And it's also possible that nothing will pass, that nothing will end up having the majority of votes that are needed in order to, to, to make a change. And as we heard from uh, Reverend Mark Holland when he came and shared with us earlier in the fall, progressives and moderates and people somehow in the middle or maybe just on one side of right or left are trying to come together around the one church plan. It is the plan that most clearly preserves the unity of the church while allowing for contextualization and differing opinions to coexist. And it is true that it is not a liberal plan. It does not go all the way to justice. It does not go as far as what we here at College Hill United Methodist Church would like it to go. But it does represent a huge, a huge step forward that our denomination could take toward affirming and including LGBTQ persons in ministry. It would free us here at College Hill to be in ministry in a way that we have been longing to be without any fear of punishment for our congregation, without any fear of punishment of our clergy, without uh, any restrictions placed on us in the ways that we might welcome and affirm and include LGBTQ persons in the life and ministry of our church. And as I reflect on this reality, I want to draw us back to that scripture from 1 Corinthians. Because what I realize is that the world that we live in today is not so different from the ancient world. The church in Corinth was also struggling with how to be the church even when members disagreed. In the context of this church, Paul had helped to start it along with the missionaries, a couple named Priscilla and Achilla. And, and the way that the church worked at this time is that they would start many house churches that would be under the leadership of, of different people. And Priscilla led some, and Achilla led some, and Apollos, another co-worker in Corinth, and Cephas. All of these folks were leading house churches in Corinth. And then they would come together ever so often for Holy Communion. And the church at that time was made up of Jews and Gentiles, and all of them, after their conversion to Christianity, were trying to figure out which parts of their old religion they could leave behind or had to leave behind, and which parts of their old religion could be incorporated in with Christianity. There were also people in the church from various social strata of society, and in the church, they mixed together in a way that they did not do in normal life. And so a few examples, women were given equal place beside men in leadership. 
The rich and poor worshipped together in the church, and people from different ethnic backgrounds now found that they were one people because they were united in Christ. They were no longer considered separate people. And you can imagine that this was disorienting at times, that they couldn't always agree on how to make it work. At that time, there was also a teaching going around the church that that spiritual wisdom and knowledge was superior to anything material on the earth. And so this was contributing to an elitist attitude within the church and a condemnation of anything that had to do with the flesh. So some people had become convinced that they had already arrived spiritually. They were already perfect in their faith. And therefore, they didn't need to care about things like the material needs of the the poor. Or that it didn't really matter what they did with their flesh. And so this set of beliefs in particular had the Corinthians positioning some of the spiritual gifts ahead of the other spiritual gifts. Because any spiritual gifts that had to do with knowledge or wisdom or speaking in the tongues of angels were seen to be superior, better than any other gift. And Paul is writing to the 1 Corinthians to correct a lot of things, but particularly in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, he's writing to correct this teaching. Because in chapter 12, Paul explains how the spiritual gifts are given to the body of Christ for the common good, for the purpose of building up the church, and that all of the spiritual gifts are needed. None of them are more important or less important than any other gift. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, Paul over-exaggerates the spiritual gifts that the Corinthians are favoring, and then he almost mocks the gifts that he's lifting up, and he says that each of them is actually worthless if there isn't love. Love is what gives value to any of the gifts, not the other way around. And so if we we look at verse 1, And what Paul is saying, that speaking in heavenly tongues of angels, or in other words, speaking and interpreting tongues, that's being perceived as a spiritual gift because it has to do with the spiritual realm rather than the earthly realm. And yet what Paul is emphasizing is that this this gift, great as it though may be, if it is not expressed with love, then it is just noise. It's just noise. It's just like a clanging cymbal that won't stop making noise. And in that second verse, it also highlights gifts that were being lifted up as being better than all the others because they have to do with knowledge, with wisdom of spiritual things, the gift of prophecy, deep understanding, supernatural knowledge, great faith. And yet Paul again says that without love, The gifts are meaningless. In fact, the one who has the gifts is nothing if they don't have love. And then in verse 3, it turns us back toward those gifts that Paul, in fact, is lifting up. And he almost mocks the gifts that he says are more important. He says, even if if we, we recognize the material needs we have on earth and we give everything away in an effort to feed the poor, even if we sacrifice ourselves as martyrs, even then, love is what gives these gifts value. 
And so Paul is setting up this argument that he uses throughout the whole chapter of 13 and into 14, and we're going to continue reading this the next few weeks, because what he's saying is that the solidarity of the community as the body of Christ is founded in love, which is a fruit of the Spirit. It is not a spiritual gift. And while the spiritual gifts are given for the common good and to build up the body of Christ, and there are different gifts that are given to each one, the fruit of the Spirit are evidence in a person's life that the Holy Spirit is working within. It's like the spiritual gifts are the tools used to build the body, and everyone has different tools, but when a Christian is filled with the Spirit, love will be present in their lives. Because the fruit of the Spirit is given to everyone who has the Spirit. And so in a way, Paul is using love as a replacement for wisdom in this Corinthian theology. Knowing isn't everything. Having the right doctrine or the wisest theological argument isn't everything. And how this reminds me of our current impasse as a denomination, because adding more knowledge is not going to change anyone's mind. Making the best argument for your side to win isn't working. We have tried that for the last 40 plus years. Love has the power to transform. Love is everything. Because without love, the spiritual gifts are nothing. Because without love, we are nothing. And if love doesn't shine through us, then the fruit of the Spirit is not growing in us. We can nurture the external flashy things that call people's attention to us, or we can find our authentic selves in love. And when we, tr- when we find our authentic selves through love, it is only then that we can truly love and accept ourselves and our own gifts. It's only then that we can truly love and accept others. It's only then that we can use our gifts in the church with love. And it is only love that gives us the power to be in relationship with those whom we disagree with. Knowledge, reasons why we are right, Arguments, none of those things give us that power. Only love does. Love is what unifies the church. And my prayer as we enter this special session of General Conference is that we would enter it with love in our hearts, all of us. The conservatives, the liberals, the moderates, and everyone in between. That love would ripen in our hearts. That it would burst forth in a way that it never has before. The One Church Plan is not perfect, my friends. It is not perfect. But it provides the potential to move the needle. On a struggle that we as a denomination have engaged in for 40 plus years. It opens a space for confession on the part of the church for the harm that it has caused LGBTQ persons. 
and it opens a space for healing some wounds of LGBTQ persons. It also means that we continue struggling together to understand the sacred gift of our sexuality with the hope and the prayer that we keep growing and being transformed toward love. It means that we commit to continue being church together with the depth of love that only God can give us because it is hard. It is hard to love people who have caused us and those we love harm. It is hard. It is hard to love people who take positions contrary to our own. And yet we are called to live in community with one another and to love each other, all the while working for justice for all people. And so my friends, I want to share with you today that I am hopeful, I am hopeful that the One Church Plan will pass. And I want to invite you to join me in prayer over these next two weeks for this special session of General Conference. When you came in, inside your bulletin, you probably were like, what, am I getting a book today? Yes, you are. You received a prayer guide, and I want to invite you. There is a very short, 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 short. It will take you two minutes to do this every day the next two weeks, and I want to challenge you to do it. That we would be formed in love, that we would be in intercessory prayer, asking God, to work a miracle in our, in our midst that the One Church plan would pass. Over these next two Sundays, I will provide an update in worship, but you're also invited to follow along by watching the live stream, and the link for it is listed in your prayer guide, but we'll also have it available in the church parlor at selected times if you want to come and watch with other folks here at church. But as we close today, I just want to invite us um, to offer a prayer for my husband, Chali, who is going to serve as an interpreter at General Conference. So Chali, if you wanna come forward. And I've asked uh, Reverend Chuck Chipman to offer the prayer for us. I'm gonna have him come forward as well. But Chali is going to serve um, as an interpreter. He uh, has also been working closely with Mark and others um, in advocating for the One Church Plan and organizing and working with delegates. And so rather than all of you be out there and us be up here, I'm going to invite us to do something that might be a little bit uncomfortable, but maybe you've gotten that vibe from me by now, right? I want you to come up, okay? We all maybe need a hug today, so I want you to come up and to come close together. And if you can reach Chali to place your hand on his shoulder, and if you can't reach him, to touch somebody else in this congregation. And so you got to move. Some of you are going to have to get up. Come on up here. So, Chelsea, if you want to come, come all the way here so we maximize our, our space here. And I'm going to get you a microphone.